This week on The Rail Splitter, part two of our conversation about the Lincoln assassination. Now, now, now. Not five, not four, not two, just three. The Rail Splitter, axe in hand, looking out at a frontier of hope and possibility. In excellent to each other. And party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me today in person is Rail Splitter Nick. Yeah, we're back side by side. How I've missed your shoulder. <laughs> there's, there's a buffer. We got a buffer. Uh, and coming to us from Canada, Rail Splitter Mary. Mary, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys doing? I am great. Uh, stellar. And we have with us a guest today. We talked, I believe, a little bit about it at the end of the show that we'll be having a guest on this week. Coming to us from the great state, border state, as it were, of Maryland, uh, we have Dave Taylor. Hello, everyone. You may know him as Boothy Barn on Twitter um, and, I believe, in the blogosphere as well. Uh, a very, very highly recommended Twitter follow. Twitter follow, uh, recommended by the Rail Splitter. Uh, so, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I'm thrilled to be on the show. Big fan. Started <laughs> listening day one. You guys are my first podcast that I ever. Well, I listened to like one individual podcast before, but the first subscribed uh, podcast. All but right. uh, I'm yeah. You guys number one. I'm we're not like, going to pick we're a like favorite Rail over Splitter. Here. Yeah, I'm not going to pick a favorite rail splitter like Nick wants me to. You don't need to because everybody knows it's me. Everybody knows. Yeah. All right. But I was uh, born and raised in Illinois, so I have a deep appreciation for Lincoln. In uh, 2012, I moved out to Maryland where I'm a school teacher. But ever since kind of high school, growing up in Illinois, I wanted to learn more about Lincoln. And I got kind of interested in the dark side, as it were, learning more about his death and the assassination. So it's just kind of been this area that I've really looked into. And so I started a blog and start writing, just looking for new things that I can find about the assassination, putting it out there. And I've been fortunate to spread information with others. I got to speak at the Lincoln Library in Springfield twice. So that was a huge honor for me and got to hang out with your buddy, Dr. Cornelius. So, you know, uh, I'm just enjoying finding new things and educating the public. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about your talks at the museum? What were the, what were the topics and uh, what was the, just, I mean, you don't need to deliver the speeches. I'm just. Well, you know, I have it right here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what were you talking about and uh, what, uh, what was that experience like? In 2016, I was asked to go out and give a talk about John Wilkes Booth which uh, I think was a big deal because that's generally not a topic, you know, they put too much focus on at the Lincoln Museum. And so I spoke to the volunteers at the museum um, as one of their continuing education programs. So I kind of gave a, uh, a speech about John Wilkes Booth's history, you know, his life, um, the assassination of Lincoln, kind of what led him to assassinate Lincoln. And then last summer they asked me back again and so I gave a speech about the four conspirators who were mainly part of the assassination plot and who were subsequently executed for their involvement. So it was a, a great honor to be to be asked to speak and then to be brought back again. I didn't scare them off by teaching them a little bit about John Wilkes Booth, which is good. And then so, yeah, it was an honor to go there. And I, I got to, like I said, hang out with Dr. Cornelius, which is amazing. And he took me into the vault and I got to see the things that. You know, people don't get to see. I got to see the Emancipation Proclamation signed by Lincoln and, you know, the Gettysburg Address signed by Lincoln. I was breathing on them. So it was really uh, an amazing thing. Wow. Sounds like huh. Dr. Cornelius is your buddy <laughs> and definitely not our buddy. So <laughs> he doesn't know that we're buddies actually either. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, in, uh, in fact, it might creep him out a little bit the way that Nick <laughs> talks about him. Um, but no, we had a great experience out there too, chatting with him uh, on a previous episode. If you're uh, a recent. Um, person to jump on the real splitter nation uh you might want to check out that episode we did uh, not get in a vault and we have not been asked to speak so yeah yes. you definitely have the credentials yeah. so right i'll work on it so yeah we we <laughs> oh, no, you know, I, don't, I don't know that's if we one of our dreams <laughs> yeah one of our dreams maybe maybe someday we'll be able to speak at uh, at the museum uh probably once i don't know if we'll get we'll have the honor that you had of being asked back but we'll cross that bridge if we're ever lucky enough to get to it i'll uh, just be happy if they let us back in 
I am a member. <laughs> I am a, they have to let me in until unless unless I get kicked out for some reason. So you just make Mary do all the talking. Don't let Mary in, and then she'll sneak <laughs> right. you guys in the back. Well, yeah. What, what do you? Yeah. That's every time we have a real splitter meeting. That's kind of what we talk about. Like, yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, so what uh, what drew you to the assassination and? What has your experience been kind of being a, uh, a scholar of sorts of the assassination and of the assassin uh, the, of the assassins? Yeah, it was uh, strangely my main interest. I mean, I always liked Lincoln growing up in, in uh, Lincoln's land. You can't avoid him. But in high school, I was into drama. So I was in theater. And so a friend of mine got me the soundtrack to the Sondheim musical Assassins which is a unique musical, as most mm -hmm. of Stephen Sondheim's are, but it does teach about, you know, all the presidential assassins, and it tells their story in musical form. And so I started off being like, who are all these people, and why have I not really learned about them in school? And then, of course, I knew about Lincoln's assassination, and as I kind of delved more into it, I really was interested in Booth as a figure because he doesn't fit the mold of so many other presidential assassins and wannabe assassins because Booth, you know, had everything going for him. And so just this how unique he was made me interested in him as a character and as a person. But that doesn't mean I you know, sympathize with him, which goes with your second point, is that it can be difficult you know, to talk about Lincoln's assassination and to study Lincoln's assassination because there is the, the, the connotation that most people take it as, oh, that means you support what he did and you're anti-Lincoln or you're a neo-Confederate and the South shall rise again and all that. When you know, for me, it's far, you know, it's far removed from that. I think Booth was a terrible human being and uh, narcissistic and a lot of other things. But I still find that we need to study that to learn more about not just the assassination, but so much of Lincoln's legacy is involved in his death. I mean, what really solidified him as an American saint was him being killed when he did. And it really, you know, he already had greatness in him. And part of it, when we losing Lincoln, when we did really did so much for his legacy. So I feel like there's nothing wrong with studying the assassination, even though it is the, the darker part. Um, but I think it can shed a lot of light onto, you know, what Lincoln meant in his day, not just everyone who loved him, but the people who hated him give an important backstory to Lincoln. Yeah, I think those are, those are great points. And I was going to ask kind of about that. You know, I'm glad you kind of addressed that people every now and then you may get a little bit of questions. I don't know if I, you know, criticism perhaps. Um, and it's sad, but I think there are people out there who, you know, are they, oh, there are, yeah, some people will approach me thinking I'm like minded because I study the assassin and they will say positive things. I'll be like, Oh no, I don't want anything. Don't have anything to do with you. Thank you. Wow. Well, so what is yeah. that like? Like what, what do, what is, how does that conversation go? It is always, is always extremely awkward. And so like when people come, I've had. A young lady who came up to me and at first was asking questions, really interested. And it's like, great, you know, I like educating people. And then when it got to the point where, oh, I love Booth. I just love him. And I was like, whoa, okay. And so then it becomes, I know I probably don't have much to say because this is going to turn very dark, very fast. Right. Wow. That's, I mean, that's interesting. I, I, and I do, um, well, one, I, I just want to real briefly mention that the musical Assassins, one of our listeners is the local theater director here in, in town in Rockford, and I suggested on Facebook the Assassins. Um, is it Assassins or the Assassins? I don't know. Um, it's just Assassins. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, and hopefully, so if you're listening, Chris, we want to see the production. It's a good show. It's an interesting yeah. show. Yeah, I saw it. Uh, I actually saw it in New York um, with Neil Patrick Harris. Uh, nice. Yeah, it was great. It was yeah. uh, it was really really good. And uh, Mario Cantone was in it. Uh, and it was it was at um, the old Studio Fifty Four. They made it to a nice. Broadway uh, playhouse. It was really really cool. I think that was in two thousand two, maybe two thousand three. I guess. Uh, um, so I did want to take a little bit of time uh, to talk about uh, the. Go ahead, Before yeah, we dive sorry. into the conspiracy, mm -hmm. uh, you do a nice job kind of talking a little bit about the history of what you labeled or what's been labeled the Boothies. Um, do right. you mind kind of catching up some of the listeners that maybe don't know um, how people who have been interested in assassination have been treated over time and kind of when the transition took place um, to where, you know, people um, realize the importance of studying the assassination in detail? Absolutely. Um, you know, in, in the Lincoln field, especially in like the professional Lincoln field, the assassination were the, you know, the ugly 
you know, the ugly stepsister that, yeah, no one wants to talk about that. And so it is, there was a time, especially in, in, uh, like Lincoln research and things like that, where if you were interested in learning more about John Wilkes Booth or the assassin and the assassination, it was kind of looked down upon because it's such a, a slippery slope from, you know, studying a figure to, you know, seeming like you agree with them. And so for a lot of Lincoln scholars, people who would focus on the assassination were kind of seen in this negative light. And so oftentimes they would be referred to derogatorily as Boothies. They're not Lincoln people like we are. Those are the Boothies who are dealing with all that bad stuff that we don't want to talk about. And so that's why in the assassination field, if you can even call it a separate field, there are really more history buffs and people like myself who just have an interest in history who have made a lot of breakthroughs and have written the books until recently there hasn't been really any professional historian who has actually addressed this more than what is included at the end of every you know wonderful lincoln biography um and so as time has gone on there has been the shift in thinking, luckily, where people understand that they can look more and do scholarly type research on the assassination and not be feared that you're going to be pegged with being, like I said, a neo-confederate or something like that. So I think it's a wonderful time to be someone like myself who is interested in this because, you know, you have a chance to kind of show your knowledge. And I honestly don't think even, you know, 10, you know, 20 years ago that someone could be invited to go to the Lincoln Museum in Springfield and talk just about John Wilkes Booth and then again about his conspirators. But I think it shows that people understand this is an important part of Lincoln's legacy. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I think that I, I'm all in, and I think uh, those, those of you who listen to the show often probably have picked up on this. Like I am as much interested in how history is taught and how history is talked about as much as history itself. And it's always fascinating to me how, um, like like John Kennedy's assassination, like the conspiracy theories just run rampant, and um, you know nobody, you know very few people want want to accept that it was a one person, and then there was literally a conspiracy in the Lincoln assassination. Yet we want to romanticize the one assassin, and everybody remembers the one assassin, and it becomes this really big story about about John Wilkes Booth and then the the conspiracy which was real and you know documented uh doesn't really get talked about a whole lot and 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 really people never really learn about it like you know Ford's theater John Wilkes Booth you know the deathbed across the street these are all very very much part of our historic narrative but the conspiracy really isn't um which i just find that interesting because you can't bring up the Kennedy assassination without without you know these these wild ranging theories um one other thing about the history that you kind of mentioned too um how you talked about how the assassination kind of made lincoln into a saint and you know and i i believe that i believe that you know part of the reason that he became so uh, endeared in the american story so quickly had a lot to do with the assassination but i do think sometimes we get a little carried away with um, we just meaning Americans in general or, or fans of American history in general with saying like Bobby Kennedy and John Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln, like they're heroes because they were martyred in a way, but like Garfield, McKin right, McKinley, exactly. you know, like it's not as if they're, they always become national heroes. Right. Um, not to say that they didn't sacrifice their lives. I mean, clearly they did, but you know, we we're not, I mean, Garfield obviously was in prison very long, but McKinley's not looked at, you know, his successor is much more of an American hero than he is. Um, so I don't think it's just assassination, although I do think that that plays a role in the narrative of these of these great leaders, for sure. And I definitely agree with you, because you're right. I mean, we can't say that assassination always, you know, lifts the reputation of the people up who, who are killed. And it takes already greatness to really put you above that. And so yeah, Lincoln already had, and what we, what you guys dusk, discuss every week is the things that help make Lincoln great. But I think the thing, thing that has really turned Lincoln's legacy that he just continues on is that he already had that greatness and the effect of the assassination just added to it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, would people even know Garfield without the assassination? He'd just right. be another Fillmore. 
don't know. I don't know. We'll get to the article later, too, that you wrote, by the way. See, this is coming from Nick, who always wants to throw in how much he likes Chester Arthur, who would not have been president (laughs) had it not been for Garfield's assassination. But that's a whole nother Who was probably pissing himself when it happened. Right. So, uh, could you take us through um, some of the the conspirators? Because those are, I think, figures that um, really... I mean, the conspiracy itself, I think, is a very overlooked, but yet a very important piece of this story. Um, And... You are much more of an expert on it, uh, so um, could you talk to us, um, maybe if you could take us through the other assassination attempts um, as kind of a point of discussion, and maybe we can kind of have a rail splitter style breakdown of, of what we're chatting about. Absolutely, and and you're right that it is usually overlooked because it, you know, in Lincoln books, they're not going to spend a lot of time dealing with the attack on Seward or the attempted assassination or failed, really not attempted, but on Johnson because it's not really in the purview of what they're looking to cover. And so the only places where you get really get in-depth looks at these sort of things are books that are really devoted to the assassination itself. Um, so we know that on the night of April, April 14th that John Wilkes Booth, of course, went to Fort's Theater and assassinated the president. But he was prepared in order to also assassinate Secretary of State William Seward. Gross better drinking game. There you go. Yes, it does. I know. It's been a while since you said it, Nick, so I thought I'd do it then. I'm getting smarter. Um, And then uh, also, of course, the vice president. Um, And I think one of the biggest misconceptions about the Lincoln assassination is the idea, and you see it repeated over and over again, that Booth did not make his plot to... Uh, kill Lincoln until the morning of April 14th when he went to Ford's Theater. That's absolutely not true. He had a meeting with conspirators the day before, on the evening of April 13th, already laying out what was going to happen in the next few days um, because he, on the, the day of April 13th, on the Thursday, he had gone to both Ford's Theater and to Grover's National Theater, the rival theater in town, had talked to the owners of both and had learned that both of those theaters were going to invite Lincoln to the next evening's performance. And we know that Tad Lincoln chose to go to Grover's instead of Ford's, and that's where he was watching the, the play Aladdin when his father was shot. But Booth was aware of this and was under the impression that Lincoln would probably say yes. I mean, it was a celebration time in D.C. This was definitely something that it was a good assumption that Lincoln would go to the theater that night, even though it was Good Friday. And so on the night before the assassination, Booth gathers up the few conspirators he kind of still has with him from an initial kidnapping plot that kind of failed. And he starts laying out jobs. And so he will commit a former Confederate soldier by the name of Lewis Powell to attack and kill Secretary of State William Seward. And last week, you guys did a great job of talking about how Seward had been injured um, a few days prior in a carriage accident um, that left him essentially bedridden in his home behind the White House. And so he was really an easy target uh, for Booth. As Secretary of State, you know, he was a very strong figurehead for Lincoln. The two had become very good friends. And um, even though Seward was not in the line of succession, um, and you guys talked about this a little bit last week, in the the Constitution in like 1792, the initial line of succession, if the president dies, the vice president becomes, and then if the vice president dies as well, it's actually the um, president pro tempore of the Senate. And then after that, it goes Speaker of the House, Scott Colfax. So do any of you know who would have become president if Lincoln and Johnson had been killed? So who was the president pro tem- Well, because now it goes Speaker of the House is third. Right. After they've switched it, as you discussed, the okay. amendment. Okay, you know, so the president. But in 1865, it was the president pro tempore of the Senate. So that'd be the most senior member of the yep. Senate. And if you get it, man, you you win the points. It must, it must it be a knows. deep cut then. because it's Was it yeah. Ashley? No. no, he's from Connecticut. Oh man, Colf- not Colfax. This nope. is all Mary. Yeah, right I mean, here. like I'd summer, yeah, I. Yeah, Mary know. is the one who actually knows no. things. <laughs> yeah, no, I. I mean, I. The only senators I wow. could probably guess. Oh. Well, they changed That's the names in the movie, and that was in the House anyway. The, you know, yeah, so it's like um, um, Sumner. I know was in the, the Senate, pr- but. Person- the president who would have been a president had both Lincoln and Johnson, well, Lincoln was, and Johnson also been assassinated, was um, Senator Lafayette Sabine Foster from Connecticut. And so oh, that is his I'm big claim to fame. <laughs> tip of the tongue. Tip I know, Nick. Yeah. Right off the tip of your tongue. Um, yeah, he would have been the president had 
had uh, both of them been assassinated. So Seward wasn't next on the list, but he was, like I said, an easy target for Booth. He was so much a part of Lincoln's administration, someone that Booth had the same amount of hatred for. Um, and technically, Seward would have been responsible, the Secretary of State would have been responsible for calling the special election to elect the president had both president and vice president died. So Foster would have become like this interim president, but whether he could have actually held on to power and maintained the presidency was unlikely and they would need the secretary of state to start that process. So it was really to kind of decimate the head of the, the government. So Seward was as much part of that as anyone else. And then of course, vice president Johnson, you know, recently vice president, uh, kind of betrayed the South in Booth's mind because he was from a Southern state, but sided with the Union. And so that's why he also assigns another member of his squad, um, conspirator named George Astra, to assassinate him at the Kirkwood House Hotel where the vice president was living. And was Atzerodt, I know I've seen one documentary where he was very hesitant. He, you know, was said to, you know, I didn't sign up for murder. I signed up for kidnapping. Absolutely, and that's oh, what, exactly what a guy! What, what like. a guy! Yeah, what a guy! You know, he's got, he draw the line somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but and honestly, he had because Booth his initial plot was to kidnap Lincoln, take him to Richmond, and uh, hold him in order to restore the release of Southern prisoners, and that was the plot that that Atzerodt had signed on for. Time passed, and that plot never became feasible. But George was still waiting for the huge payday that Booth had promised him. He said the Confederacy will pay us whatever we want if we can kidnap Lincoln. And so George is still hanging around in D.C. on April 14th. Booth is is paying for his hotel bills, but he's still waiting for all this money he's been promised. And so when Booth on April 13th says, you're going to kill the vice president, he does balk at his assignment. But he still follows through the next day and he will check into the Kirkwood House Hotel right around breakfast time on April 14th. And he will start scouting out the place. But when the time comes that evening at 1015, uh, he doesn't have the courage to do it. And so he'll get a few drinks at the Kirkwood House bar and then he will kind of he'll leave and he will throw his knife that he had that he was supposed to use into a gutter. He'll ride the trolley back and forth between Georgetown and D.C. and then finally make his escape out of D.C. But he will go north compared to the other conspirators like Booth who go south. So, and, and what's what's the rest of his story? Like, how does how does this how does the story end for for Aserat? Not great. Um, and well, and I strangely, he is able to because the he doesn't leave D.C. until the morning of the fifteenth. So he kind of rides around. He goes to a hotel and he he sleeps there for a few hours, and then he leaves. And he's on a, a stagecoach heading out to to the to the, the, the Union line outside of Washington, and he's actually stopped because by that point, on the morning of the 15th, Stanton has closed down D.C., um, and he is trapped inside D.C., and he knows that eventually they're going to connect him to Booth, but he manages to actually talk his way past the guard because he gives the guard a drink. He takes him into a bar, and he says, hey, sergeant in charge here, will you come and have a drink with me? And then when, they fi when Stanton finally sends new orders saying, okay, you can pass people out of the city if they have their own teams, so all the farmers who just come in and out of the city all the time, you can send them out. Stanton says, you can let those people go. And even though George didn't have his own team or anything, because he bought a drink to the guy in charge, they just let him go on through with one of the local farmers. And he manages to escape this you know, lockdown city. He's the only guy who shouldn't have, and he did. But he will eventually make his way to Montgomery County, Maryland, where his cousin lived. Um, but he doesn't do a good job of hiding out. He says some weird things during uh, Easter Sunday, during a meal about the Lincoln assassination that throws some suspicion on him. And then he is later arrested up there at his cousin's house and brought back to Washington and put on trial. What was he actually put on trial for? All of the conspirators, uh, because the only death that night was Abraham Lincoln, um, even though Lewis Powell would attack Secretary Seward and wound him and four others in the secretary's household, they all survived miraculously. Um, so even though the only death was Lincoln, all of the main conspirators who were then arrested, they were the rule of law. They were kind of charged with what we would think of as vicarious liability in the death of Lincoln in that they knew what Booth was plotting. They did not take any active steps to stop it. Some of them took active steps to not only help Booth kill Lincoln, but also to kill the Secretary of State and kill the Vice President. And so um, 
they were all kind of charged with just this rule of conspiracy that they knew what was going to happen and they were as guilty as Booth, though Booth was dead, in the death of Lincoln. So that is kind of what they're all charged with was aiding and abetting and helping in the assassination of Lincoln. So just to switch gears uh, a little bit, um, can you talk a little bit about John Wilkes Booth? Um, Is his fame understood? Is it overstated? Um, how would you characterize just how well-known and how shocking it was that, that this individual turned out to be the assassin um, and what path led him there? Yeah, I, I would say his fame is definitely warranted Pr- you know, prior to the assassination. He is a name you know. Um, the Booth family were a theatrical dynasty. So his father was a was a, a wonderful Shakespearean actor from England who came over here, started a family. He had three sons who followed in his footsteps and became actors. And so the Booth name was known far and wide. And so in the, the Civil War years, there is John Wilkes Booth who's acting on the stage. His older brother Edwin is becoming incredibly famous. And then he has another brother named Junius Jr., who's mainly in California, but, and even though he's not the greatest actor, he is still part of this family. And so John Wilkes Booth was making, he bragged that he was making $20,000 a year during the 1860s, um, which is a huge amount of money back then. So is that A-level celebrity? Yes. B, oh, he's A level. Right. He's A level. Back back in back then, if you were in the theater, you either had one or two jobs. You were either a part of a stock company, which means you stayed at the theater and you just performed whatever play you know you were told, and you just got paid a certain amount for just being part of that theater's company, or you were a star. And so Booth was a star, which means he would go from city to city and he would get the top billing roles and all the other actors would have to act around him. And then he would get benefits in his honor, which means when he performed that night on a night with his benefit, he would get all the proceeds after the theater took in the costs for advertising and all that. So those were big nights. So when Booth came to town, his name was at the top of playbills and I actually have one right here. I know you can't see it, my audio people, but this is one when he was in Boston and his name is right on the top. And it says the third week of Jay Wilkes Booth. And so these type of things, he got top billing. So his fame was, you know, to the same level of any A-list celebrity that we could think of today. So he's the Ric Flair of the theater world, <laughs> going to the different t- territories and headlining them. You literally, Woo! you literally have every celebrity to compare him to at your disposal, and that's the one you end up with. So <laughs> Ric Flair is famous. So limousine riding, jet flying, fine dining. <laughs> Ric Flair, who John Wilkes kind of it sounds like you know they got some similarities there. So and Ric Flair was a heel, just saying. So um, you, you mentioned that he had talked about he had earned twenty thousand dollars in a year. Um, just to put that in perspective, uh, when uh, Abraham Lincoln was president, his salary was twenty five thousand. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, so, he's making president money. Yeah, and uh, and Lincoln's net worth when he became president, and he did very well in Springfield, uh, was fifteen thousand. Uh, so Booth's yearly income was more than a very successful attorney's net worth, uh, right. or at least a frontier or Illinois attorney's net worth. Uh, at the time, so um, so the 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 rumors are true. He was as famous as the as Ric Flair, Anybody I suppose, else? or people you would see <laughs> on the Golden Globes, I guess. Right. Um, so in that uh, that artifact that you showed us, that's a, that's an actual primary source. That's a that's an actual playbill. Um, yeah, it is actually a playbill from a run when he was at the Boston Museum in I think it's 1863. So wow. there are not a lot of uh, John Wilkes playbills, because we also have to keep in mind that the thing about the Lincoln conspiracy is all of these people involved were very young. I mean, Booth was 26 when he kills the president. Um, and so, you know, the, he, the criticisms against Booth's acting mainly stemmed from people who thought, you know, he still has a way to go. You know, he's doing great. The name, you know, he's got this wonderful name behind him and he has a talent, but he's still you know, he was still learning the trade in, in many respects, but he still had that that star power that people brother Edward 
Chaplin, who was a few years, and they were di different types. So Ed fit in with modern actors. He kind of started this idea of being more, you know, uh, internal method acting, so to speak, while John Wilkes was kind of of the older style, which was very, what we would now refer to as melodramatic. So he'd have very highs and then lows. And so he would jump around the stage and he would fence and he was known for his passion and physicality, which people enjoyed. The finer critics might have problems with the ways he said certain things, but he was still incredibly popular. And uh, can you tell us a story of how that came into your possession? eBay. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I was very lucky that it popped up and someone only wanted $200 for it. And I was a little worried it was a fake because these things go for thousands. And then I was like, well, I'll roll the dice and see. And then uh, I bought it and had it checked out and got it authenticated. So I know it's real. Cool. Um, I know this is a little bit off topic, but how do you get something like that authenticated for for someone who found a relic in their attic, maybe, that's listening? I say, oh, um, well, for mine, it was serendipitous that a bookkeeper that I know up in Annapolis also had a Boston Museum playbill that had John Wilkes during a different engagement, and he was he was selling it, and so I asked him if I could bring in mine because the main thing I needed to check was the the paper because these playbills were not last meant to last; they're very on very thin paper. And so I was concerned when I got it because it seemed almost fake because I was like, this is so thin. I don't know if this is real. But comparing it to a similar one, um, unless both of them are fake, which I hope not, um, that we were able to tell that, yeah, both that this is definitely a legitimate one. And I do have another one hanging on my wall that's actually a Ford's Theater playbill. It's not one with John Wilkes in it because that would be an insane amount of money. But it actually is his brother-in-law, John Sleeper Clark, who – um, married uh, Booth's sister, Asia, and so one of his performances at Ford's Theater. So, once again, eBay, wonderful place. All right. <laughs> so, like, this crazy, crazy, uh, you could make up a crazy backstory, but uh, I think the eBay one's pretty good, too. So Hopefully he's not listening, or whoever sold it to you. And he's like, dang it! Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah they could have gone to an auction house and got a lot more than $200 from me, but I'm glad they didn't. Yeah, and it's kind of cool, too, that you then didn't turn around and go to an auction house and get you know, a, well, a few maybe thousand when more. I'm desperate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and he did go by Wilkes Booth more than, uh, is that true? Um, he signed his name J. Wilkes Booth. Um, so, that, yeah, that's what it says on that playbill. And so, professionally, I guess people would, with that, but people would call him anything. Some, his close friends would call him Johnny. Some would call him Wilkes. So, and some would just call him Booth. So, he really just went by different names depending on who he was with. All right, Mary. I feel like we're we're we're. I know you got a cold, so you've been a little quiet. But I don't know if you wanted to, if you had any questions you wanted to throw in there. Um, actually, you like everything's been covered. Like I wanted to know about the perception of those who studied the assassination, and you covered that very well. And, um, yeah, it's all my questions are being answered, so it's excellent. I'm just really enjoying this. It's so interesting. Well, thanks. Me too. Well, I've, <laughs> and you guys, I, I have to get all three of you and to come down to Maryland to do the, and I know you were talking about how you might do a future episode about this, but to do the John Wilkes Booth escape route. And so I am one of the narrators. So there's a, the Surratt house museum, which was the first stop that Booth and Harold took after they, you know, sh they shot Lincoln, they picked up weapons there. It's now a museum and it tells the story of Lincoln's assassination. And uh, in the spring and the fall, they do a bus tour where it's a 12 hour bus tour. You start at Ford's theater, you stop everywhere that Booth stopped all the way to where he was shot and killed in Virginia. Um, but it's a long day, but you'll learn a lot. And so you'll have to do a road trip out here one of these days. Heck yeah, real splitter yep. road trip. Yeah. Yep. Hop down. For sure, for sure. Um, can you uh, can you give us kind of a brief synopsis of uh, that? Um, and or, or maybe just specifically the stop at the Surratt House, because I think that's a bit of a controversial maybe part of the, of the story that people, I, I think some historians are probably not a hundred percent on the same page on, um, or maybe not. I don't know. You would, uh, maybe can speak to that. Uh, about Mayor Surratt and her guilt or innocence. Correct. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, Mayor Surratt is one of the, the big controversial figures. Um, so 
uh, Mary Surratt was originally born in Southern Maryland and she had a home in what is now, um, it's in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is south of DC. And so she lived there, her husband, um, created a tavern that was located kind of on a, a busy intersection road and it was part of the stagecoach line. So in the years prior to the civil war, they're living there and uh, part of, you know, they're getting money from the tavern. He dies and she kind of has to take over the tavern and her oldest son, John Surratt, who would later kind of become one of Booth's conspirators kind of helps her with it during the civil war years. Uh, the tavern kind of becomes this Confederate safe house. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning, I am coming from the border state of Maryland, and Maryland has just a very unique history when it comes to the Civil War. You know, we were a border state. Maryland was allowed to keep its slaves, even, you know, even though it was a union state all the way until the new Maryland had a new um, constitution that they wrote in 1864. And uh, I, I firmly believe that Booth also being a Marylander, um, I think that plays an important role in what Maryland's role was in the Civil War and what led Booth to do what he did, because there's so many people in Maryland who were sympathetic to the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. You know, Southern Maryland in particular and Baltimore were just hotbeds of Confederate sympathizers. And so that's why Booth found so many people willing to help him in this area um, because they had these Confederate sympathies because the Potomac River was the main transportation hub and it was just right there. So it was very easy for people with Southern sympathies to find clandestine ways to help here in Southern Maryland. And that's what happened at the Surratt Tavern, um, so much so that her own son, John Surratt, became involved in all this. Um, in late 1864, she moves her family, she's tired of the tavern life, and she moves her family to a boarding house in D.C., which is now, it still stands, and it's, it's in D.C.'s Chinatown neighborhood. It's a the walk and roll restaurant. No, oh, wow, I'm willing to go. Yeah, uh, I've eaten there many times. Their sushi is pretty good. Um, and so she's living there when pretty much the main part of the assassination uh, conspiracy starts. And so she has people like Lewis Powell and George Atzerodt coming to her boarding house. Booth becomes a frequent visitor at the boarding house in DC. And so these, the, the, all these visitors and what happened later really turned against her. And one of her boarders there was a man by the name of Lewis Weichmann. And he would talk about all these people coming over. Booth would have conversations with John Surratt, but also with Mrs. Surratt, even when John Surratt wasn't there. And what could they possibly be talking about in hushed tones? And then the day of the assassination, after Booth has confirmed that you know, Lincoln is going to Ford's, he goes to the boarding house to see Mary Surratt when she tells him that she's planning on going down to her tavern. And Booth um, offers to pay for her wagon and says, will you wait a second? I'm going to go back to my hotel and get something. Will you take it down to your tavern for me? So he leaves, he comes back and he gives Mary Surratt a wrapped package. And together, Mary Surratt and her boarder, Louis Weichmann, ride on down to her tavern. And when they get there, um, they meet with the man who's been renting her tavern, a man named John Lloyd. Um, and she gives the package to Lloyd. And according to Lloyd at the trial says, um, make sure to have the shooting irons ready. A party will call for them later tonight. And so she is referring to a cache of weapons that had been hidden at the tavern during the abduction plot. Um, and so this is what Lloyd says was told to her. And then she goes back to Washington. And then that night Lincoln is assassinated. And so those um, two things, all the conspirators being around her house and the fact that Lloyd testified about have the guns ready and the fact that Booth and Harold do stop there. It's their first stop after they you know, shoot Lincoln and escape the city and they knock on the door. They wake Lloyd up and all David Harold says is, Lloyd, make haste and get those things. He doesn't even have to say what it is. Lloyd knows what it is. And they give the weapons and continue on their way. And so that evidence was very damning to Mary Surratt as was the fact that Lewis Powell, the one who attacked the Secretary of State that night and then escaped into the darkness, a few days later, he shows up at the boarding house in D.C. right when investigators are there arresting everyone. And so that did not you know, shine nicely on Mary Surratt, that the man who attacked the Secretary of State has shown up and uh, is there at her house. So all of those things play against Mary Surratt. Wow, that's uh, that's. Yeah, and that's an interesting story, and I mean, we could probably even spend a whole episode on that, um, just because there is a, a range of historical interpretations, or at least takes on on what actually happened. Um, I do think that uh, it's also um, very compelling to look into border state history, especially with Maryland. I mean, like, um, 
you know, early in the war, there's there's all kinds of stories of you know trying to whip up whip up uh, support for the war and patriotism, all that kind of stuff, and um, units marching in Maryland were actually in as much danger marching in the street just from civilians attacking them as they would have been trying to go into battle, and they ended up, you know, in many cases had to stop any sort of demonstrations because it was, you know, people would just attack Union soldiers because it was um, very, you know, very much a, a Southern sympathizing certain sections anyway and i think maryland sometimes gets uh, gets overlooked you know i think we tend to look at missouri and kentucky as the as the big border states um and lincoln has the famous line about you know having to have the border states but i you know i think maryland sometimes is is overlooked yet it had more people and was so close to washington dc um and clearly that's where booth came from and i don't think it's you know i think people make a mistake sometimes saying like well he's from maryland he wasn't even a southerner i'm like well it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't yeah and even though he was from northern maryland too he was his uh, home of where he grew up and the farm that he lived on it still stands today it's actually a museum about the booth family it's called tudor hall um and you can visit it they give tours i give speeches there pretty often um little plug um, but it's, it's only, I don't know, it's 15 miles from the Pennsylvania border. Um, so he, he grew up in Northern Maryland, close to a free state. And yet his family did have slaves and he grew up with slavery around him because he was a part of Maryland. And I point out when I give the tour that the first hostile deaths in the civil war were in Maryland. So we know when you guys discussed Fort Sumter, you talked about how there was an explosion during the surrender ceremony that killed, I think, a private and a couple horses or something like that. But the first hostile deaths were when a, a troop of Massachusetts militiamen were making their way to Washington. When they got to Baltimore, they had to switch and go walk for a few blocks to go to a different train station. And while they were marching through Maryland, a pro-Confederate mob surrounded them and attacked them and killed several of the Massachusetts militiamen. And they shot back and killed several of the mob. And so the first hostile deaths were in Baltimore, what was known then as the Baltimore riot. And so Maryland really is, has a very interesting history in the civil war. And that's why, you know, it was so I think important and so much a part of Booth's plan and why I really think that only a Marylander who saw everything that happened, because after that Lincoln locked down Maryland, you know, he sent in Benjamin Butler with a thousand troops and he locked down Baltimore. He arrested pro-Confederate lawmakers. He suspended um, I mean, he declared martial law in Maryland before anywhere else in the country. And that definitely impacted uh, Booth's view on Lincoln as a tyrant because he saw it happen with his state first. And then it's spread, you know, to other places in the country when Lincoln, you know, needed to, you know, needed these war powers to get things done. Yeah. I, and, and that's, yeah, those are, I think sometimes important for sure, especially with the history of the early war for many reasons. One, just how delicate the Union was. Um, and two, really just to look at what, you know, the Civil War in general. I mean, it, you know, that, you know, when I'm like kind of picturing in my head this unit walking through a, a town and then being attacked by the townspeople, I mean, that's not too far off from modern warfare in many ways. You know, you don't, not knowing if, the, if this is if, if we're encountering friendly people or not, and there's no way to tell the difference and, until they're on top of you and attacking you. And, um, and yet this is in the United States, um, in, in supposedly the North. Right. So, right. um, to, to think the geography was the, was the divider, um, especially when you look at the history of Virginia and then the formation of West Virginia, uh, and, um, you know, the idea that, you know, once you cross the Mason Dixon line, everybody wore blue. And once you went south of it, everybody wore gray. Um, or at least everybody that, that wasn't enslaved um, is, is not the case at all. Right. And Lincoln was very unpopular in Maryland. In the election of 1860, he only got 2.5% of the vote in Maryland. Um, but you know who was very popular in Maryland in the election of 1856, Nick? Don't say. <laughs> yep. And this is this is what I wanted to say for you is that you know we know in the election of 1856 your buddy Millard Fillmore, that who clown. of course was president from 1850 to 1853, he decided to throw his hat back in the ring and run for president again. And what party was he part of, Nick? The Know Nothings. The Know Nothings. <laughs> they were anti-immigrant, anti-Irish, America for Americans. Sounds a little familiar. And he was their candidate. And 
when the election of 1856 happened, the only state that Millard Fillmore won was Maryland. Wow. Man. And you, and you know, moved there. And you <laughs> moved, know, you moved I, from I, Illinois to Maryland. You no, make I, me uh, sad. I know. <laughs> but do you know who almost assuredly voted for Millard Fillmore in the election of 1856? Good old John Wilkes John Booth. John. Probably not good yep. old, actually, at all, but John Wilkes. Yeah. You are another reason to hate Fillmore right there. <laughs> I like exactly. how that's, yeah, like we'll hate Fillmore because of that. Hey, yeah, I got a question. Family. Go, we ahead, know Mary. Nothings. Go ahead, Mary. I, I was actually going to say, I have a, I have a question um, about, I believe he was from Maryland, Dr. Samuel Mudd. What was his involvement? In Thank the, you for asking that. I've been conspiracy, like, yeah. assassination and all that. I've always been fascinated with him. Um, so Dr. Mudd, another controversial figure. Most people know that after Booth broke his leg, uh, after shooting Lincoln, where it happened is actually a, a point of debate that we don't actually know. The traditional story that everyone kind of retells is that when Booth jumped from the box to the stage, he got grabbed by Major Rathbone, his spur got caught in the flag, and he fell funny and broke his mm -hmm. leg. It's possible that he did, and Booth even writes that in his own diary, but um, there's also evidence that while he is actually escaping out of Washington um, and riding his horse as fast as he can, that his horse actually falls on him, and that is that could also be the reason how he broke his leg. But regardless of how, Booth breaks his leg you know, during his escape and needs a doctor, and so he goes to Dr. Mudd's house. Dr. Mudd lives in Charles County, Maryland. Uh, it's a rural area still today. He knocks on the door around 4 a.m. on April 15th, uh, David Harold, who's with him, knocks on the door. Dr. Mudd invites them in. He checks his boot's leg on the sofa in the mud house, which is still there, realizes it's broken. He helps him up the staircase into an upstairs bedroom where he lays Booth out, cuts the boot off of him, off of his leg, and then helps to splint it. And Booth will spend about 12 hours in the house. And then around 4 p.m. on April 15th, um, they leave and continue on the escape. And so everyone knows that part is that Dr. Mudd set Booth's broken leg. What does not get enough advertisement is that Booth had met Dr. Mudd mm -hmm. in 1864. And Dr. Mudd was, I believe, full-heartedly a part of the abduction plot against Lincoln. And Booth, he realizes if he's going to kidnap Lincoln, he needs to take him through Southern Maryland. And so he goes down there and he meets with Dr. Mudd. We know that for certain. We know he spent... One night, several nights at the Mud Farm, Dr. Mudd helped him buy a horse. Dr. Mudd is the one who actually, in December of 1864, introduces John Wilkes Booth to John Surratt in Washington. I, I firmly believe that if Dr. Mudd was not around, Mary Surratt would never have had any problems because Booth would never have met John Surratt and never gone into the realm of knowing Mary Surratt and everything else. So it's hard to know. I don't think Dr. Mudd knew that the plan, the plan, the plan had changed to assassination. Um, he, up, it, if he knew about the abduction, he would still have thought that was the case because after December of '64, Mudd just goes back to his farm and doesn't has no contact with Booth. Mm -hmm. So I think when Booth showed up with a broken leg, if he was smart, he wouldn't have told Dr. Mudd what he did at first because he needs someone to tend his leg. And then after a bit, he likely did tell him, and Dr. Mudd then effectively kicked him out. Um, but he's a controversial figure especially down here um, in Southern Maryland. There's an elementary school named after Dr. Mudd down here. What? Oh. Yeah, it's almost got a job there because oh. the family of the Mudd family still lives around this area. And the, the, the Mudd house, which is now a museum, was still uh, resided in by Mudd descendants up until the 1970s, uh, late 1970s, when it became a museum. And so the family story was always to support this idea of Dr. Mudd as an innocent country doctor who helped a man with a broken leg and went to jail for it. And so that is a story that was perpetuated over time. There's a great 1939 movie called The Prisoner of Shark Island, which is all about it. It's got Warner Baxter, Gloria Stewart, who was the old lady from Titanic. Yeah. She, plays, she plays Mrs. Mudd. And it's all about just it, and it's it's what the Mudd family always wished everyone would think about what happened. That the doctor is just hanging out in his house. A guy comes in. He sets his leg. He continues on his way. Has no idea who it is. And then he's put on trial and goes to spend time in prison on Shark Island. And so that was so perpetuated year after year after year by the Mudd family and by popular culture that it became the truth to to a point where Dr. Mudd became a local hero and how he was mm -hmm. treated wrongly by the Union government and how you know his his great or his grandson 
Dr. Richard Mudd lived to be 101 years old and spent all of that time trying to exonerate his his grandfather. And so it's only been in really more recent years that we can look more objectively at Dr. Mudd and realize that he definitely was part of the abduction plot. He probably didn't know about the assassination plot, but when Booth showed up, he was stuck between a rock and a hard place and mm -hmm. he just lied his ass off in order to try to save himself and got caught during the trial and he was very close to being executed himself. Wow, that's, I mean, wow, even, even if you subscribe yeah. to that narrative, I still don't think that's enough to get a school named after you. <laughs> like, no. There's a lot of doctors. Well, it's funny because all the other, uh, so many of the other, they're all doctors. A lot of them in Charles County, and so many others have just great histories. Like one of the doctors who tended, uh, two, two of the doctors who tended to George Washington on his deathbed. Those are the names of two elementary schools. And then there's also good old Doctor Sam Mudd. Wow, oh, I, cool. I don't know why that's so fascinating to me, but like, it's very in in, in Maryland yeah. where you know there's you know quite a lot of history. Obviously, you've got I'm sure dozens of war heroes and whatever else and that's wow that's the name of the school that's how i got the interest in dr mud was my parents recorded a movie for me i don't know if it was made in the late 80s or early 90s but it was about dr mud the ordeal of dr mud yeah that was probably yeah. it and that's where i started kind of my like just what was like his involvement and like you just said i've always believed it was you know yeah he he knew probably not about the assassination mm -hmm. but that like he knew he knew about yeah. stuff yeah 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 he knew stuff he was not an innocent country doctor no. that you, and and if you ever take the tour you'll realize no one just shows up to the mud house it is yeah. still kind of in the middle of nowhere yeah and so this idea that booth with a broken leg in the rural countryside happens upon a doctor in the middle of the night hogwash he had been there before he had mm -hmm. slept there before he knew i know a doctor who will help me i'm going straight there yeah, and this is still, let's not forget, a celebrity, right? So, I mean, like, right. that's like yeah. a movie star showing up and uh, to think, like, oh, he just must need help. <laughs> like, it's, you know, well, strange. Dr. Mudd yeah. Mud would lie and say he didn't recognize Booth, which is one of the things that really worked against him at the trial because he, he had to later confess that, oh, yeah, Booth had come to my house in the fall of 1864. Oh, yeah, I did introduce him to John Surratt in, uh, right around Christmas time of 64. But when he showed up in April, I didn't recognize him. But Dr. Mudd says that Booth was wearing a fake beard, fake whiskers when he showed up, which is ridiculous because when, as you're making escape out of Washington, riding your horse as fast as possible, do you have time to put on stage makeup and fake whiskers? So it's one of those things where, I, I, you know, Mud lied because he was trying to protect himself and then got caught up in all of his lies. Yeah, and you're you're a physician, so, like, you know, when you're examining someone, you don't notice that they've got, like, a yeah. disguise yeah. on. Yeah. You're like, you know, well, that's... Is that you, Santa? Um, yeah. Let's pull it down. <laughs> he's such a talented actor, though. Maybe he was just you know, he's a right. character or something. So we've talked several times about the kidnapping of, you know, Lincoln... How far, so was John Wilkes, like how far up the chain did he get as far as working with Confederates and people tied to Confederacy on this kidnapping plot? That is the million dollar question. Um, there are many books written, about, there are lots of books written about the assassination and there, it, there are different authors who go to different degrees of Booth's connection with the Confederacy and the Confederate Secret Service. We know he did have contact with at least some of the lower echelon people. John Surratt, as I told you, he was a Confederate courier. So he would help put um, mail and people across the secret line that ran through Maryland down to Virginia. He was part of the Confederate underground. Um, so we know he in contact with people like that. And we do know that at the very beginning of the kidnapping plot in um, October of 1864, Booth goes up to good old Canada, Mary. Um, <laughs> so he's had this idea to kidnap Lincoln and he goes up to Canada and he goes up to Montreal yep. because that's where the Canadian cabinet is. And that's, yep. you know, you Canadians, you Confederate Canadians causing problems <laughs> with the Northern Union states. And so Booth goes up and he goes to Montreal. He goes to the St. Lawrence Hotel and he's in Montreal for mm -hmm. 10 days. And that is the biggest mystery about what happened during those 10 days. We know Booth was at a hotel with other Confederate agents. 
Um, there were there was tr uh, testimony at the trial that would put Booth with high-ranking members in the can Canadian cabinet talking about the kidnapping of Lincoln. However, many of those people who testified to that effect were later found to be committing perjury and that it may have been the union kind of wanting that to be the case. And uh, we do know when Booth was in Montreal, he did meet with at least one man named Patrick Charles Martin, who was originally from Baltimore. He was a liquor dealer and he was a smuggler and he ran the union blockade. And um, Martin is the one who uh, listened to Booth's idea to kidnap Lincoln and gave Lincoln letters of introduction to the underground network in Charles County in Southern Maryland. Because Booth couldn't just come down to Southern Maryland and say, hey, hey I want to president, even though people down here would would be doing that they would love that because they were anti Lincoln. they would just assume he was a union spy and ignore him and so he needed letters of introduction and he got them from patrick martin in montreal and he got a letter to a doctor named dr queen and according to one of the other conspirators he also got a letter to dr mudd that dr mudd was part of this underground confederate network then he was high enough that people knew who he was in montreal and so we do know that Booth gets those letters. He comes back to the United States and he will go down. And that's when he first meets Dr. Mudd. So whether he got more help um, is really the million dollar question. People like um, Lewis Powell, the conspirator who attacked Secretary Seward, he was a former Confederate soldier. Um, he was with um, a Florida infantry unit at Gettysburg where he was wounded. Um, and then he was captured. He was a prisoner of war. He escaped. He went and joined um, General John Singleton Mosby's Partisan Rangers and was part of that guerrilla warfare in Virginia. And then he just left Mosby and went back to Baltimore and hooked up with John Wilkes Booth. And so that is suspicious, too, is was he ordered to go and join this idea, this plot to kidnap Lincoln? Um, we know the Confederacy did have its own plots, especially after the Patrick... Um, uh, Dahlgren raid, a uh, Kilpatrick Dahlgren raid, in which it seemed as if the Union had authorized the assassination of Jefferson Davis and other people. The Confederacy at that point started thinking of plots against Lincoln to both kidnap and assassinate him. None of them really got anywhere. Um, and so the big question is, did they have a hand in it? My personal feeling is no, because I think Booth was such an, an unreliable character to them that it I don't know if I was in charge of underground Confederate network and I was a high ranking member, if I would put so much trust in this actor who up until just a few months ago was doing nothing on the part of the Confederacy. He was just making his own money. He, you know, he didn't fight against me. He wasn't, he wasn't in the union army, but at the same time, you know, I don't think I would put trust in this actor to do all these things. He had grandiose plans. Um, but I personally don't think any, Confederate rank officer, you know, with any smarts would really give Booth such a important task. And even then, if I was, I would give him a lot more help than just one soldier from Florida and a letter of introduction. I would have given him a lot more help. And so my personal feeling is that there was little connection to the Confederate, but really, we don't really know. Um, how much documentation is there about Booth? Um, feeling towards Lincoln um, out there. Um, I, I know there, there's a diary found on him. I mean, and how far back does it go? And do we start to, and do you notice like a shift or an evolution in his hatred and anger towards Lincoln? Yeah, Booth's diary, as we call it, is actually kind of a misnomer in one second. So when Booth was killed, a, a date book was kind of was found on his body. And I know those of you who are listening cannot see it, but I actually have a replica of it. The original is at Ford's Theater. Um, and it actually, it does say pocket diary, but it actually is a date book from 1864. And so when Booth is on the run, um, uh, prior to the assassination of Lincoln, he wrote kind of two manifestos in which he lays out why he did what he did. The first one he writes in um, 1864 when it was still a kidnapping plot. He writes this this uh, le long letter out and he gives it to his sister in a wrapped package and says, put this in your safe just for safekeeping. 
And then in 1865, right before he assassinates Lincoln, the day of the assassination, he gives a, another letter to one of his acting friends named John Matthews, who was actually in Our American Cousin that night. And he gives him an envelope and he says to Matthews, give this to the newspapers tomorrow, which you think that would kind of set off warning bells. You know, <laughs> tomorrow, give this to the papers. They're going to want to know about it. I would read it. But Matthews did not. After the assassination, he opens it up, he reads Booth's manifesto in which he's talking about why he had to kill Lincoln and, and where he signed all of his conspirators' names. And Matthews is so terrified at having this, he throws it into the fire. Um, and ironically, he does that at the Peterson house because Matthews rented an upstairs bedroom. So while Lincoln is downstairs in the back bedroom, laid out diagonally, um, dying, John Matthews is uh, Boost manifesto about why he shot him and then Matthews burns it in the fireplace. So it's it's an eerie coincidence that both of those things happen at the same time. So we don't actually have that last letter because Matthews destroyed it. He would later try to recall it from memory, but it it was it was sometime after and it was tainted with the fact that the eighteen sixty four letter had been published and Matthews had read that and so he kinda fit pieces together. Um, and so in Booth's mind, his main re reason for killing Lincoln, or so he portrayed it, is because he did legitimately see Lincoln as a tyrant. He saw him as a danger to the Republic. Remember, Booth is a Shakespearean actor. He acts out the heroes of and the tyrants of, uh, of Rome and things like that. And so he sees Lincoln as having abused his power, has amassed a huge amount of power, and he does not believe that Lincoln will give it up at war's end. He feels he is going to turn into a Caesar. And that is why, you know, he says, you know, six Semper Tyrannus, thus always tyrants and everything like that. And he lays the blame at the deaths during the Civil War on Lincoln. And he also talks about his hatred for the abolitionist movement, about how this country was formed for the white, not the black man. And he believes that the fight for abolition will lead to the destruction, or so he says. He believes that abolition will lead to the destruction of the black race. This is the things he writes in his letters. Um, we have to take it with a grain of salt because he was writing all this stuff for posterity or for his own sense of grandioseness. And so there also was this sense of Booth wanting to do something great. He was always seeking greatness. He got it upon the stage, but it wasn't the same. He didn't want to just act like a hero. He wanted to be a hero. And so, so much of what Booth decided to do was his own vanity, pushing him to be known for something and to do something great that he thought everyone would appreciate him for when he was, of course, very much wrong in that respect. Yes, indeed. Um, and if we could, um, I'm kind of making a call to line of scrimmage here. Um, Dave, if you're, if you're willing, uh, we did have some questions from some listeners that we would really like to get to, uh, but we do like to keep our shows to about an hour. So uh, would you be willing to come on uh, here or stay on with us and we'll kind of split this into a two-parter? Is that Absolutely. something you'd be willing to do? Well, I, I appreciate that. So uh, we'll go ahead and close out this episode, um, and it looks like we will be coming back next week with more on the assassination. So this two-parter just became a three-parter uh, for those of you out there. So, so Dave, thank you so much uh, for answering our questions. we got some great user questions for you. Uh, we do. We want to get to some things next week, including John Wilkes Booth's demise, how he ended up dying, um, a little bit maybe more about his escape, maybe a little bit more about his personality, and then some great, great, great user-submitted questions. So, uh, once again, thank you every I week. I would like to say, and we'll give you another reason to hate Fillmore. <laughs> oh, I got to think of another one? No, no, you already have it. But we're going to hold on to it until episode three, which we're really going to do here in a couple minutes. Right. So so. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so uh, we do, of course, we can't leave without our This Week in Lincoln. Uh, Dave, I know you're a listener. Did we like to offer at least our guests the opportunity to supply This Week in Lincoln? Did you have an idea of something? I did. I thought right. about it. And I was like, oh, I wonder if they'll ask me for one. Um, there is a lot of very interesting Lincoln, and especially Lincoln assassination material in the comic book world. And I know you guys have addressed some of this yourself and uh, and. There's a, a wonderful friend of mine named Scott Schrader, and last 
year, he gave a presentation at the annual Surratt, uh, Society conference about the Lincoln assassination, all about the Lincoln assassination in comic books. And so he just had all of these fascinating um, instances of Lincoln and Booth and the different stories that they had. And so I was inspired by that, that in uh, 1964, there was a Justice League um, uh, I don't know, comic book put out where they introduced Earth 3, which is a, in the multiverse, it's a version of Earth where a lot of things are opposites. And so, for example, Christopher Columbus was an American who discovered Europe. Um, and the uh, British colonies won their independence from America. And then also, it's time Abe Lincoln who shot President John Wilkes Booth. And so, there is actually a drawing. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln with a gun in his hand, leaping out of the presidential oh, box wow. where there is a slumped over John Wilkes Booth. And so I thought that might be appropriate. Um, I think it's kind of good for John Wilkes Booth that he's the one who ends up dead in this uh, universe. Wow, that's uh, I like that. Uh, I yeah. For a short time, I collected cool. uh, comic books with presidents in them, specifically Lincoln. Um, I'm always on the lookout. Every time I go to a comic book store, um, I'm looking for... Uh, the Flash number two ten. There's a Lincoln uh, yep. on the cover of that. Uh, I have not yet found it. That one I had not heard of, so I'm really glad. So, what actual comic book was that? What, what title was that under? It was Justice League, and I'll have to get you. I'm I'm not a wait. Uh, yeah, I'm not a comic book expert. It was Justice League. I know it came out in '64. Okay. And it was it was if you look up just Earth three. I think it was the first appearance of Earth three, which is also filled with the opposites of all the main superheroes. Instead of Superman, there's Ultraman, and he's just like evil Superman. And instead of like Wonder Woman, I think it's Amazing Woman, and she. Justice League are actually like the criminal criminal syndicate of America and they pull the Justice League into their universe to battle each other. Wow. So we, we are getting a lot of Marvel movies. Yeah. So hopefully they'll get so tapped out with ideas that they will go to Earth 3. Um, that is a great example of a This Week in Lincoln. Really quickly before we uh, sign off for this episode, uh, we do have a Rail Splitter book club. Uh, we want to make sure that we remind everybody of um, the book that we have selected for at least the first installment of the book club is called Lincoln, The Man Who Saved America by David J. Kent. Uh, we will be talking about chapters 1 through 4 on our February 8th episode. If you'd like to ring, read along, uh, it is not required. You can still probably enjoy the episode without having read it, but if you'd like to kind of read along with us to join us in the book club, uh, February 8th would be when you would need to have the first four chapters read. Once again, not required, but hopefully it'll be kind of a fun exercise. We'll break it up into thirds and try to split them up a month or so apart. So you're telling me I don't have to read? Well, it might be helpful for the host of the show oh, to actually okay, read it. Okay. I'm a little behind myself, so I will get to it. Um, so, uh, Dave Taylor, thank you so much. Uh, you can check him out at Boothy Barn on Twitter. Boothybarn.com is the address for the blog. Is there anything else we could plug for you, Dave? Uh, no, those are that's all I have. So that's great. Thank you. That's a that's a pretty impressive uh, uh, amount of content. You can you can kind of go down a rabbit hole reading those blog posts, and I suggest it highly. So uh, we will be back next week with the third installment of our co our coverage, our discussions of the Abraham Lincoln assassination. Uh, so for Rail Splitter Nick and Rail Splitter Mary, I am Jeremy. Asking you to keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all, and we will see you next week.